Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. All right. You ready? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Rashmi Quatra. She is the founder and CIO of 16th Street Capital which invests in emerging markets using a Buffett-style approach. She's a 30 under 30 Forbes Asia graduate of the Wharton School, the youngest partner ever at Prince Street Capital, which is a multi-billion dollar emerging markets investor. We're going to talk to her right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hi, Rashmi. How are you? Hi, Tobias. I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Very well. Thank you. I think you're the first guest who I've had on who speaks English, Thai, Hindi and Punjabi. So how do you come to speak it's, four languages? It's a good mix. Um, I, I guess my heritage, I am ethnically South Asian, so still have some roots uh, in, in India, which is the Punjab region and, and Hindi. And then I grew up in Bangkok, Thailand. So Thai is actually my first language and then picked up English along the way. <laughs> and I saw in your deck that gives you some advantages when you're visiting countries, you're able to travel freely between India and Pakistan and so on. Yeah, so being a Thai national, because there's been a lot of um, you know discrepancies between some of the South Asian countries, etc., um, it's not easy for people to get in and out of some of these markets. Um, but for me, you know, we travel freely, and, and I've been visiting these markets for over a decade. So your uh, your pitch deck describes Sixteenth Street as a long-term investor in Asian growth markets, and the the way that you describe it. Uh, growth emerging markets, GEMS. So why the focus on GEMS? I think it's what I know. So again, I grew up in, in Thailand and ASEAN, as, as the trading block is called, or Southeast Asia was, was you know home. I traveled often to Indonesia, to the Philippines, and then I have a South Asian uh, heritage. So, you know, traveled to India often. And my first job with Prince Street that you mentioned, you know, I started as an analyst covering this region. Um, so I was fortunate that, you know, some of the competitive advantages we talked about and, you know, where I was placed in my first job to allow me to focus on these markets. Um, they happen to be some of the fastest growing um, countries in the world. So, you know, over time, um, there was no need to look elsewhere because the kind of, you know, tailwinds and, and kind of rapid economic growth we're seeing in, in kind of my region of focus. Um, offers us quite a lot of opportunities for for long-term compounding. So uh, let's talk about your philosophy a little bit. What are you looking for when you're examining these um, stocks? So as I mentioned, we've already kind of narrowed down these markets that are in earlier stages of development than, say, the U.S., Europe. So, you know, they have certain things in their favor, including a younger demographic, 
population that's still, you know, entering the workforce. So these countries are already growing, you know, at GDP growth rates of five, six, seven, eight percent. One of our markets is touted to grow almost 10 percent in the next couple of years. So we already have economic growth in these markets. Now what we're looking for is, you know, companies that are well set up in these markets run by talented management teams um, who can, you know, not only kind of grow with the tailwinds that these markets provide, but take, you know, market share from, you know, perhaps the public sector or less well-run companies um, and grow multifold over time. So it's really important to us to find, you know, companies that have um, a long runway for growth and then really run by strong management teams, um, you know, in these markets one thing's for certain is there'll be volatility, there'll be changes in regulations, but a really smart management team and an aligned management team can often navigate that very well so that you come out ahead, um, you know, gaining market share in, in industries that, you know, already have quite a lot of, of, of room. How do you characterize your investment style? Is it, is it growth in a value framework? Are you looking for compounders? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that definitely looking for compounders um, and you know we have to understand um, you know what are the potential of the potential of these companies to really be able to value them accurately um, so we do a lot of work in really understanding you know what's driving these these companies are they you know most sustainable are they do they have you know are the number two and number three player only in existence because they allow them to be you know certain things that really First and foremost, we try to understand, you know, the business model and the competitive advantages of this business model. And then we do a lot of work to value that so that, you know, we always want to be able to, to get in at a, I mean, we will always get in at a price much lower than the intrinsic value, whether that's a single digit PE, you know, not necessarily. When you're constructing these portfolios, uh, how concentrated do you get? Um, how many positions do you like to hold? How do you think about geographic concentration and so on? So we have, you know, in total 25 holdings. Our top 10 holdings is roughly 60% of our portfolio. Um, our largest market is about 46% of the portfolio. And then in total, we, we have about six countries represented in the portfolio. Um, again, I mentioned, you know, these markets are fantastic if you are you know, have patient capital and a really long-term outlook because there will be volatility. So um, we like to have a portfolio that has some diversification in terms of country allocation so that, you know, when India is going through a liquidity crisis, we can fund from Thailand um, or, you know, the Philippines has, has a change in uh, the, the, the political party and we have an advantage ability to fund from other places the portfolio to take advantage of that. So it's important for us to have exposure in a few different markets, um, but we do uh, get quite concentrated in kind of our top 10 positions. You say that you're looking for sectors that can disrupt. So how, how do you characterize disruption and, and what does that mean? It, it doesn't have to be sectors that can disrupt, but definitely the teams and and the companies that are doing the right things to continue to kind of disrupt what was you know um, normal practice before that didn't work before. So it could be um, you know the sectors that we're primarily invested in are 
traditional consumer companies and financial services company where they will today we we see you know low adoption rates in financial services companies and you know in for consumers we're seeing you know household incomes continue to grow as the G, as the economies grow so so both these kind of sectors will benefit um, along with kind of you know the more digital economy so e-commerce companies uh, finance fintech companies so in terms of disruptors we're looking for you know the financial services company that is using um, mobile payments to address a se segment of the population that historically could not be addressed before. We're looking for the consumer company um, that is, you, you know, make using you know e-commerce or the the leader in e-commerce or classifieds businesses to to reach again um, segments of the population that you know just five or ten years ago could not be reached. Disruption also means you know management teams you know, in the private sector that are disrupting the way, you know, the government used to do business, so the public sector. Um, so we're really looking for people who are um, thought leaders and using whatever technology is available today um, to kind of increase their target audience. When you're uh, going through your investment process, you, you talk about finding the compounding trajectory of the business. How do you go about figuring that out? You know, it comes from many avenues. You know, one such, um, you know, one method is we've studied, you know, business models that have, you know, withstood time in more developed markets. Um, so, you know, we've we've seen, you know, how retail businesses, for example, have been disrupted in in most developed markets, but some formats have withstood even e-commerce. And and why is that? And could the same dynamics play out, um, you know, in Asia where we we're at a much earlier stage of growth? Um, and therefore maybe have, you know, many more years of compounding. Um, we might look at, you know, how um, similar, you know, internet businesses have done in China or um, in the developed markets. And, and again, we have the luxury because, you know, these economies are 10 or 20 years back. So with some assumptions, you know, we could, we can kind of triangulate as to what business models, you know, maybe will work in, in these markets as well. And then alongside that, um, you know, really, identifying you know where are the pockets so adoption rates in you know banking are low the, if you are using technology and and understanding that understanding that you know while people don't have mobile uh, have bank accounts or insurance you know they do have cell phones so which companies are um, using technology and cell phones to kind of increase their reach what is the trajectory look like um, you know from where they are today and and kind of even the market um, growth that, that they can expect because um, of kind of lower penetration or adoption rates. When you talk about identifying the moat or identifying the sustainable competitive advantage, it must be a challenge when you're looking at uh, countries that are growing very rapidly and that are at, a, at an earlier stage. How do you go about getting comfortable with the moats in these countries? You're right. You know, I mean, we can talk, you know, traditionally looking at historically, you know, what the companies have been able to do. So, you know, have they reinvested their capital uh, in a way that incrementally brings more returns to to all their stakeholders? Um, in times of, you know, so so we do we look at kind of what is their return on investment, what is their incremental return on investment, how have they, uh, dis, you know, in times of 
crises or when the economy is slowed or their segment has slowed, you know, have they reinvested in R&D? Have they been able to control costs so that their market share, even in tough times, you know, continue to increase or, or you know, those kind of dynamics? What, what are we seeing in times of strain? Are there are, is there dominance or, or is it growing? Um, and over time, how have they allocated capital and then shared it with their stakeholders? Well, that's that. That was you, you sort of. That was my next question. How do you get comfortable yeah. with the way that some of the controlling shareholders or the controlling entrepreneurs um, treat their shareholders and uh, other investors? We find that the best ones, uh, you know, you really get ahead by partnering with entrepreneurs and shareholders that have large, um, you know, stakes in the companies. They are the ones that are doing it right are very aligned. Um, and, and, you know, we do spend a lot of time looking at, you know, what their alignment is, is, you know, is, are, do they own a large part of the business and is the business, you know, a, a large portion of their uh, net worth or livelihood. And, um, you know, over time, how have they allocated capital? And, you know, whether it's through um, dividends or buybacks or, or just reinvestment, um, you know, have they had, had arm's length dealings, so no related party transactions? These are the kinds of things we look for, um, you know, in their historical behavior. And then we spend a lot of time on the ground as well, getting to know these management teams. So unlike you know, some more developed markets, I do believe in these markets, you know, actually this is true, irrelevant of market, but who you're partnering with is very important. And so a, a lot of what we do is, you know, I've been flying to these markets for over a decade, meeting the management teams, the business families, you know, their customers, their suppliers. So we triangulate, you know, if we're looking at a management team, whether their practices, um, you know, are whether what they say they do is really what they do by speaking to some of their peers and competitors. If they say they're not very aggressive on pricing, is that true from the eye from of, of a third party? And and you know what do other um, you know anybody in their ecosystem say about their them? You know we do interviews with ex employees. Um, you know we really do think. It's important to assess the management quality, um, both in kind of their historical actions and um, kind of a reference check in terms of uh, ensuring that, you know, what they're projecting for the future is in alignment with, with at least what uh, other stakeholders are saying about them. What are the major differences between investing in more developed markets and investing in the areas where you're invested? I mean, there there are several differences, but you know there is often less published research. Um, so you know the top few companies may these markets are just less developed. There's less capital going into the capital markets. The field of finance, um, you know, the number of hedge funds, everything is lower in Asia. So that means that you know while a small cap company in the U.S. may be covered by seven analysts and you know, analysts who have been trained um, to think about, you know, the importance of different parts of a model. Here, that's just not the case. That's growing. Um, and we're seeing, you know, the the financial field grow. So there's more and more coverage even of, of um, you know, the, the less liquid or the smaller companies. But 
your access to kind of published research will be lower. You also have to deal with, um, I mean, these are dynamics, but definitely much more volatility, the amount of kind of retail investment in some of these markets. So the these markets are, you know, while in some of the more developed markets, institutional capital makes up a lot of the trading liquidity in some of these markets, it will be the retail capital. So you will see volatility, um, which, you know, you really have to be prepared for in these markets. And it actually provides you, uh, you know, great opportunities for the long term because they trade on emotion. You can you can um, really, if you, if you have um, a long-term horizon, take advantage of that. But those are a few things that, you know, in, in some of these markets, you need regulatory licenses. So, you know, for me, setting up 16th Street was very important that even when we set up and as we scaled, that we would have direct access to all of these markets, which means you need a foreign portfolio investment license in India. You need to have uh, assigned tax regulators um, in Bangladesh, et cetera. So setting up you know, and having access is a little bit more difficult. Um, but once you do, you know, the the sophistication actually of the trading systems and the exchanges, um, you know, are are much stronger today. And um, you know, when it comes to repatriation of capital, etc., they're almost like the West. Um, you just have to do your own research um, and be prepared to kind of take advantage of some volatility along the way. Just changing tax slightly, what's what's it like going from a multi-billion dollar hedge fund to starting your own shop? Um, I mean, it's been it's been a great journey. It's it's uh, only you know less than two years into it, um, but I think I learned a lot from from you know the fund that I was with. A lot of you know wonderful practices I've taken with me into 16th Street. Um, the importance of on-the-ground research, you know, some of the relationships that I've built over the years have allowed me to start this. Um, and now, you know, it's really kind of crafting um, what I think is is sustainable for me for the very long haul. So, I mean, it's, it's a journey. <laughs> I don't know what... <laughs> What's the significance uh, a, of the name? It's, it's been... 16th Street is... Um, where I grew up. So my mom lives on Soy 16. Soy means street in Thailand. And of course, I worked for a fund called Prince Street Capital for, for many, many years. So 16th Street is, is kind of home for me. I noticed when I was going through your pitch deck that you have a concentration in India. Is that because uh, it's a bigger market or do you think that the opportunities there are particularly good? Both. I think the opportunities there are great, but not necessarily better than some of the other markets I invest in. So they're equally as good, if not, you know, maybe more attractive in some of the other markets, but it is a much larger market with more depth. So again, you know, we are focused on more bottoms up process, which means, you know, we want to be invested with great companies run by great teams in a market like India, where there's, you know, over 5,000 listed companies, you know, finding a handful of companies is um, more plausible than, you know, in the Philippines, when really you're only looking at 40 companies to be that are in your investable universe. So, so it's a it's a combination of of just being a larger, deeper market um, alongside kind of the the, the long term opportunity we see in that market. Do you make uh, develop relationships with local investors, other other local hedge funds, when you when you're looking to invest in these countries? 
Absolutely. So I, I do. And I have some great relationships and great friends, you know, solely, um, you know, Philippine managers, a Thai manager, um, Indian managers. Some of them are invested with me in my fund. And, um, you know, we do, I think over the years, I've cultivated a network, um, you know, to share ideas and, and more so, you know, thought processes. And, and, and you know, um, I think it is important to, you know, speak to everybody, whether it's fund managers and peers, um, you know, as I mentioned, the businesses and, and their comps. So one of one part of the process is definitely, um, you know, building relationships with managers in these markets. I ask because I think sometimes there's an advantage to being a local, but then I think there's also sometimes an advantage to being an outsider and being able to view uh, the companies in a in a country in the context of the rest of the globe. So how do you how do you weight those two considerations? I agree, and I think that we're in kind of the sweet spot because I am considered a local in these markets, um, and and just by. You know, virtue of, of them being smaller markets at these Asia, et cetera, and, and the time I've spent in these markets, I probably visited, you know, Pakistan or Bangladesh more than any other manager. Um, so so I'm considered local, but then because of, of kind of our process, first a more regional uh, geographic focus, and then our process, which looks at kind of how things have developed, um, you know, even in the global ecosystem, we're able to zoom out and, and yet get kind of the access and the treatment as as we do and, and kind of because so much of our focus is also being on the ground um i do think we see things like a local and they kind of step back and and look at how it plays into things and in the correlations and kind of triangulate between um different markets when you're looking at these companies do you are you looking for something that can dominate geographically or dominate in the country or do you think you'll find some things that will potentially dominate on a global scale? So, you know, because these markets are in such earlier stages of development, there's still quite a lot of growth within their markets in themselves. So I find that, you know, the Home Depot of the Philippines, for example, they have so much growth in the Philippine market itself, it would worry me if they went even to Indonesia. So uh, there is, it's a combination. So not necessarily some of the companies we're looking for, you know, we think that they have um, these markets provide, you know, growth for many years to come without stepping across borders. And we have newer age, you know, companies that, you know, are are building businesses afresh and there are network effects in the e-commerce market, for example. So we have in our portfolio an e-commerce company that is dominating in several regions in Southeast Asia. Now, I think Asia is also so far ahead when it comes to, we can talk about this, but, you know, kind of leapfrogging in, in, in financial technology and mobile payments. And, you know, I can open up a bank account in India, in uh, Philippines in less than a minute. I still can't do that. It took me forever to close my bank account in the U.S. the other day. You know, so I can't do that in the U.S. I can't do that in Singapore. I can't in India. So some of these technologies and some of these businesses will be global. I agree with you that there's a very interesting phenomenon and I've seen it in telecommunications in particular where uh, it's difficult to go out and run copper twisted pair to every single house. And so there are lots of parts of the world where that's never happened, but it's not mm -hmm. as hard to run out mobile cell towers 
And so where they haven't ever had twisted pair coaxial cable, they've gone directly to uh, fast uh, cell phone data plans that uh, yeah. some of the rest of the world, some of the rest of the developed world doesn't yet have. Exactly. So, you know, some of what we're seeing in that uh, field, especially, um, and, you know, this is because the infrastructure wasn't laid out. So to, to the developed world's credit, you know, the mobile phone, you know, is less important when you have a bank branch um, and everybody already has access to credit. It's very different in, in the developing world, which means, you know, with kind of cell phone penetration and, uh, you know, almost 5G network, 4G network, really great internet um, across these markets, which they've built out. What we're seeing in terms of it, definitely in that interplay, how you're connecting to a consumer using mobile um, is, is much ahead of what we're seeing in the developed market. So, so whether it's those companies, those technologies, or those ideas, you know, that will be much more global, I think, going forward. What does it do to uh, a nation to move from being underbanked to being, uh, being able to access financial services? I mean, it's, it's, it's the multiplier effect. The effects are, are very large. So these are, you know, I speak to, to small businesses. I was just in Indonesia speaking to a small business. And, you know, they, there's, there's a shop. They sell, you know, your everyday necessities, um, you know, personal care, uh, food and snacks. And, and their business, you know, today, you know, because they have access to, you know, firstly, they're using kind of their cell phone and, um, you know, services to provide their customers with, um, you know, more products. So you can now, you know, top up your mobile phone digitally at their their um, store. You can buy travel tickets. Um, you know, you can send money to your mom using the, the payments network. So their businesses are growing because of technology. And now because, you know, they're able to we're using technology to get better data on that shop's economics and, you know, how much revenue they're turning over, we can provide financing to them at a much more affordable rate than, you know, just a few years ago, which allows, you know, the shopkeeper then to think about expanding their business. Um, so we're talking about, you know, people getting credit at a much lower rate than they would historically been able to. So it's either they weren't, didn't have access to credit or they were paying, you know, a loan shark or somebody in their village a much higher rate. And now we are, we're giving them access to credit at a much lower rate, which allows them to scale their business and doesn't, and doesn't increase risk because we're able to assess their business much more um, prudently kind of because of the information that we're able to get in this digital world. Um, so I think, you know, the this is a small kind of micro example, but the connectivity, the access for, to the rural villages that, you know, didn't have um, an ability to kind of scale their businesses, we're seeing that take over. And small and medium enterprises in these markets are a much larger portion of the economy. Um, just to change tack a little again, how sure. did you personally get interested in investing and how did you get from, you did a Wharton undergrad, and then you did uh, some postgrad. I'm sorry, I've just forgotten the name of the London. No, that was in uh, a semester abroad. So I went straight from undergrad at Wharton to working for Prince Street Capital, which is a, a fund that invests in emerging and frontier markets. And what was the uh, what was the what, why 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 investment? 
Why value investment? I was very fortunate, I think, to be taught uh, young. Um, going really back, I think for me, I grew up in a in a in a household with you know sisters and a mom who didn't work, and I could see that she was you know financially very dependent. Um, and for me, the idea of being kind of self-sufficient and and you know, financially secure was always appealing. So I was always looking for, you know, a way to, you know, sell our books or sell our lemonade or, you know, something to, to th I enjoy being able to make money, that's for sure. And I was fortunate because as I was growing up, um, my father ran a small business. He exported home decor from Thailand, um, mostly to the US. So Pier One Imports was one of his largest customers. And you know, I got to follow him around the office and, you know, ask him, you know, you know, what is trade? Who are his customers? How does he go about sourcing? Over the time, you know, you know, I got to learn about inventory, you know, credit and things like that and, and loved it. You know, I would buy out any excess inventory he had, um, set up shop in my school, you know, started, um, you know, a small business even back then. And, Maybe fortunately, again, for me, um, maybe unfortunate or, or fortunate for him, his business got very competitive. Uh, the Indonesian rupiah uh, depreciated during the Asian financial crisis. And exports from Thailand, you know, where um, the economy is, is slightly more developed than some of the other region, was just not as competitive. And so he had saved up enough capital to send, you know, my sisters and I to, to you know, any Ivy League school that we got into. He knew that... Uh, he could provide that level of, of um, you know, education. And it was our um, kind of what we did next uh, was up to us. And and so he start, became a full-time passive investor in the Thai equities market. So that meant I had access to, you know, he would be handing me the intelligent investor and saying, Rushmi, read chapters 8 and chapter 20. Uh, you know, Phil Fisher, Graham Buffett, you know, I was reading it and, and, and fortunate to be able to and then have somebody to sit with, you know, on a, on a Saturday or Sunday and say, you know, what kind of businesses are you looking at and why is that a good business? And I think because he came from a, a business of his own, you know, and had made some earlier mistakes in investing, he was very much focused on um, you know, finding great companies, you know, again, it, it was always instilled in me that the equity markets are just a proxy, you know, that we were lucky that they existed because that meant that you could put 5,000 baht, you know, or $100, $200 in a business. Um, and, and they're just a proxy to investing in great businesses, um, which meant I learned, you know, first and foremost, what makes a good business, how to think about business. And, and, you know, that compel, I mean, it, it I was intrigued, I enjoyed it, and, um, you know, it led me to think about, you know, if I could master the skill, I'd have kind of financial freedom uh, for the very long haul. And so Wharton was the uh, touted as the best undergraduate business school. Um, I applied and you know, we went from there. <laughs> and when you got to uh, Prince Street, how did that uh, mold your investment process and, and change your philosophy? Or, or not? Um, you know, when I got to Prince Street, I think, again, 
I was attracted to the opportunity because I thought that they were serious about some of the markets that I wanted um, to do more work in. So they were investing in Thailand, in Southeast Asia. And so, but they didn't have an analyst on the ground, you know, running around, meeting all of the companies and, and really doing some of the bottoms up research from, from Asia. And I was willing to do that. So I spent, you know, the first few years of my career at Prince Street really just I didn't, you know, if somebody mentioned a company in Asia and I didn't know, you know, what they did and who was running it, you know, it didn't sit well with me. So I ran around, you know, these markets, meeting the management teams, you know, whether it's through screens, through conferences and getting to know the companies very well. So, you know, what Prince Street provided me, which I didn't have, you know, as, as, as an earlier investor or, or as a novice learning and, and, you know, even my father still doesn't have is, you know, the access to these management teams and I think what the the importance of understanding kind of on the ground research and, and the motivations behind um, some of these families um, is kind of what I really took away from it and what I focused on and then brought to them my focus on, on really um, diving deep and understanding the companies first and foremost. Um, so, so they added to my process, but I think the fundamental kind of um, grooming that I had earlier in stage or learnings that that really has, has stuck through till now. So what do you regard? I mean, I, I, it's kind of a hackneyed question, but I, I, I still want to ask it and I still want to understand what do you regard as your edge? I think, you know, we talked about several of these things, but the ability to, to analyze a business first, you know, this is the thing, but analyze a business first and then understand why these businesses may or may not make sense in these markets, because I've grown up in them. I know when I go to the small medium, small, you know, shop owner, what her problems are, what the threats are of modern retail, all of these things, you know, inherently make uh, a lot of sense to me because I've lived through them. And then I spent a lot of time on the ground getting to know um, kind of what's changing. And it's this ability to kind of um, correlate, you know, kind of what we're seeing in terms of, you know, global trends or global changes with what's happening on the ground and being able to triangulate that and then have a focus on, um, you know, finding the right people to do it with for the very, and then, you know, because uh, of, of age, this thing, the time to have a very long-term horizon, um, you know, those are the things I think are, are my competitive advantage. What's the, uh, you, you know, your, I, I ask about the edge and this, that's sort of a personal question for you, but then the opportunity is what yeah. is the, uh, what does the investment opportunity set look like for you where you can exploit that edge? I'm not sure if it's, you know, I get to your question, but the investment opportunity is then, you know, such a large part of Asia, you know, where just in 2000, you know, Asia made up less than a, a third of the world's economy, you know, less than a quarter. Now it's going to be 50% in 2040, 40% of consumption is going to come from Asia. So all the incremental growth we're seeing in the world, um, you know, where companies do have an ability uh, to grow very rapidly for many years to come uh, are in the markets, you know, that, that I believe I have a competitive advantage. 
so when you're when you're examining a position and you 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 invest in it how do you know then whether the position is working or whether the uh the 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 thing that you've identified is, is it working how do you know if it's wrong i mean we follow i mean you know that's part of why we have you know a, a, we like a concentrated portfolio and um, we really keep up to date with our holdings and their peer set. So, you know, we are on conference calls with the management teams of our companies, you know, once a quarter. I still travel to visit them several times a year. My analyst team that I've built up is also traveling and, and on calls with them. So, you know, we, we keep track of where we think the businesses will go, you know, for what it's worth. We do, you know, model out what we think these businesses will look like three to five years. We check our assumptions and whether, you know, what we believe it are going to, you know, it's going to happen, you know, continues to, to unfold as we um, we had assumed or, or if there are variances, what that means. And and if something, you know, really changes, then then we, we reanalyze whether our thesis um, was broken. And, and, and if so, you know, learn from it and, and move on. And how do you make a sell decision? Is it uh, your price has been reached or are you waiting for some sort of deterioration in the fundamental of the business? Um, oftentimes it's because um, I need the fund, I need to fund something else. <laughs> so, you know, historically I sell because I have a better opportunity or, or I think it's, it's a better opportunity and and that's more where the sell decisions come from. We don't necessarily sell um, just because something has reached kind of our, our medium term potential. We are investing in businesses that, you know, can be several times larger. And um, so, so while we do model out, you know, where we think these businesses will be three to five years from now, and sometimes they overreach in the short term, that doesn't necessarily lead to a sell decision. Do you trade around positions if they get too big? Do you trim them back? And if they go in the short term, they run against you. Do you tend to add to them? It depends. Uh, if I have the capital um, and they go against me, I would add to it. Um, you know, on the other side, again, just because it runs, uh, if I didn't need the capital elsewhere, it's not necessary that I would trim it. And how do you feel about the strategy now, the short-term, medium-term, long-term outlook? Is it a particularly good time to be looking at emerging markets? Absolutely. I really, I, I think that um, some of what we've talked about has been true for, for these economies, you know, the great demographics, um, the, you know, economies growing at a more rapid place in the developed markets has been, has been true for, for quite some time. But Things are happening today and have been happening in the last couple of years that are setting a stage for the next, you know, few years and the next decade of Asia to be particularly strong. We've talked about some of the, you know, technological changes that that just make the target addressable market for the private companies, companies run by private individuals that we really want to be invested alongside, you know, expand exponentially. Um, so. We, I, I believe that in the next few years, we're going to see, you know, a continued, you know, really fast adoption, you know, whether it's e-commerce, whether it's, you know, higher adoption rates in terms of financial services, um, you know, leading to, um, you know, more consumers in the formal economy and their ability to spend, 
improving quite substantially. So, so for us, all of these changes are very positive for our economies, our markets, our countries, uh, I mean, our companies, and um, we're looking forward to, to the next several of years. Emerging has uh, underperformed the US in particular, almost everything in the world underperformed the S&P 500. But that has led to this unusually wide uh, valuation discount for emerging versus developed. Is that, uh, does that make the opportunity set even better, do you think? I think so. Um, you know, to the credit of the US and some great entrepreneurs, you know, we've seen, um, you know, several markets and I mean, several companies continue to, to make way for a strong market. But, you know, if you look historically at any point of time, it's really, you know, a decade emerging market has outperformed, a decade S&P has outperformed. And, and I think we're at the stage now um, where um, there's enough going on in these economies for, for them to, to for, for the world, I think, over the next couple of years to, to price some of these assets more accurately. Do you see that on a company by company basis that they're, they're much, much cheaper than you would expect, say, something comparable in the US to be? Not necessarily. So in our markets, you know, even some of some companies, you know, not some of our holdings, some of the best run companies in our markets are not necessarily, um, you know, very cheap or, or um, you know, there is price discovery and, and kind of quality discovery. But the runway for growth in some of these companies is much, much longer. What what drives that? Uh, so they're they're not unusually undervalued. But what drives that is that locals finding that these are very good companies, or is that uh, foreign investors finding that they can find an equivalent business to one that they might have looked at in in the West, and it's it's uh, it's maybe slightly undervalued, and then bidding that up to a level. Do you know? Is that possible to know? It's much much more the local institutions being more developed in these markets today. So, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, uh, some of these markets were um, foreign flows really drove um, much of the market. But today we're seeing uh, the institutional capital domestically uh, grow quite sustainably. So, you know, there's been a push by governments, you know, to kind of have certain tax savings, et cetera, if they invest in funds that invest in the equity markets to promote uh, the development of the equity markets, for example. And we're seeing that um, some of the best companies in these markets, um, you know, their price is determined by the local capital and, and less foreign flows. Your second largest holding is C Limited, SEA Limited. Could you just talk a little bit about how you found it uh, tell us a little bit about the company and what's happened since you've invested in it. Um, so C um, is has a strong gaming business. It's a gaming distribution company and it's uh, a market leader in e-commerce in Southeast Asia. So in markets like Taiwan, it's competing for the number one position in Indonesia, which is a very deep market. Um, you know, we've been studying this company since since pre-IPO. So, you know, pre-IPO, we looked at kind of C and Garena, which is um, their gaming arm, and thought about, you know, the kind of presence they have in gaming, how underpenetrated gaming in Southeast Asia was, 
um, and really, you know, from an early stage, liked that business. That business was a cash cow, um, you know, throwing strong cash flows. But what the management team was doing at the time was reinvesting in two other businesses. One was an e-commerce business and one was a payments business. In our analysis, you know, both spaces, again, we think there are long runways for growth. Um, e-commerce is quite nascent in Southeast Asia, um, and and so is the payment landscape. But to build kind of a, a payment landscape that could compete with some uh, local strongholds in, in these markets would be difficult. However, they there were signs that you know they could succeed in e-commerce. There was not yet one dominant e-commerce player. Again, I mentioned the market is is quite nascent. Um, but I was hesitant to to invest earlier on because we weren't sure whether good good capital would be thrown at kind of an industry that that really would take a long time uh, to to kind of break even. Over the the last year, we've seen incredible developments in their e-commerce uh, platform. So they've continued to you know fire on all cylinders on their gaming business in Garena and Shopee, which is their e-commerce portal, has. Uh, gain traction and become a market leader in many of our markets. Um, so they're competing with some local players, but the way that they've been able to grow um, has, you know, kind of caught up our, our attention uh, late last year. So we we prodded kind of into into, you know, for us it was important to to see whether that was sustainable and and what the competitive landscape was like. So, um, you know, we did a lot of interviews with. You know, Tokopedia, which is a is a competitor of theirs, theirs in Indonesia, um, Lazada, which is owned by Alipay, and realized that, you know, both of their kind of competitors had been funded and weren't likely to get another, a new round of funding anytime soon, and recognized that the market was growing rapidly enough that they didn't have to be competitive on pricing, and that everybody could kind of grow with the market. That set a very good landscape or environment for for Shopee to continue to grow, where their take rates or the amount of, of that they take, the percentage that they take from you know the merchants that are signed on with them, are still very low compared to you know regional or global peers. So Shopee takes about two percent um, from from their merchants. You know Alibaba in China takes closer to eight percent. You know Amazon, if you kind of strip out AWS, etc., kind of back reverses to something like 15%. So here you have, you know, an e-commerce market that is still very nascent. You know, we think that it's going to continue to grow very rapidly. Pricing power, because they're not yet, you know, uh, being very aggressive on pricing. And then a competitive landscape that leads to, that is, that is, you know, benign. And so everybody can grow without cutting prices. So, you know, when we saw those dynamics, we recognized that, what we were looking for in terms of the incremental, um, you know, execution of the business, um, you know, we're tracking well. And then, you know, as importantly, the company, you know, because of, you know, just foreign flows out of out of Asia, out of China, out of this, in, in, the, in those markets late last year, you know, we were able to kind of buy the company where we would just have to um, price their gaming business um, at less than 10 times um, EBITDA, and we'd get their their shopping business and anything else for free. You know, we believe that, you know, sometimes you do that, and, 
and you can recognize that the other businesses can can destroy value. But here we had comfort that you know this business was not going to destroy value. Uh, we were they were executing well, and you know comps or peers in the markets had raised private equity capital at at you know several times GMV. So. You know, we really had this option value of a business that could be much more valuable alongside, um, you know, a leader in, in the gaming business. And where is C Limited traded? It's actually traded in the U.S. What's the so it's traded on the Nasdaq. What's the it's ticker? S-E, S-E-U-S. S-E-U-S. Well, that's great. Yeah. Uh, Rashmi, that's uh, just about coming up on time for us. But before we go, would you please let everybody know how they can get in contact with you if they'd like to do that? Sure. You can send us an email at info, I-N-F-O, at 16thstreetcapital.com. Rashmi Quatra of 16th Street Capital, thank you very much. Thank you, Tobias. It's been a pleasure.